I came to economics because I see it as a tool that helps us better understand the world and improve the world. And once you view economics that way, it's silly and counterproductive for economists not to spend more time making their work relevant and accessible. You know, I had a student a couple years ago and it cracked me up. He came to my office hours, this was an undergrad. And he says, you know, I, I just wanna ask you, how do I get to do what you do when I grow up? And I said, what do you, what do you think I do? And he's like, you basically seem to like, just get to talk and write about things you find interesting. And I laughed, I was like, I'm glad I make being an econ professor look so fun. I was like, you don't just get to talk and write about what you think is interesting unless you've spent a lot of time making sure you know what you're talking about. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Melissa Carney. Melissa is a Neil Moskowitz professor of economics at the University of Maryland and one of the top young economists in America today. She is also director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a non-resident student fellow at the Brookings Institution. Melissa's scholarly research focuses on poverty, inequality, and social policy in the United States. She previously taught at Wellesley College and served as a director of the Hamilton Project at Brookings. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. It's been a real pleasure working with you at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. There are a few people I know who think as clearly and communicate as effectively as you do. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Me too. So Melissa, let's start at the beginning. You are not only a first-rate economist, but someone who cares about people. And economics is a tool you use to make a positive difference in people's life. What role did your family and early education play in shaping your career? And was there an early teacher or mentor who made a difference? Yeah, there's always a teacher or a mentor, it seems, who makes a difference, right? First, I'll say I'm really glad that you see me as someone who cares about people first and views economics as a tool to better understand the world and hopefully make the world a better place. That interest of mine in the way people live and how to improve the livelihoods of people, that has always been a visceral, deep felt interest of mine. The path to economics is perhaps more surprising. And really, there were a few dedicated people along the way that I credit for getting me here. First, I'll start. You asked about my family. So I'm not from an academic family. I'm not from a family that ever studied economics. My parents did not grow up in sort of a world where people went to college or pursued professional degrees, but they always encouraged my three sisters and me to pursue what we were interested in, to work hard, and they were a constant source of encouragement and support. I think there was always a bit of a puzzle to them with how much I liked studying. And I think they still are a bit puzzled by why I like economics so much, which my mom still says she doesn't quite understand what it is, but they have always just encouraged me. So that's, I think, you know, without that, I wouldn't be where I am. In terms of early mentors and teachers, 
you know, there's two in particular that I would call out. Mrs. Tory was my fifth grade teacher and she recognized something in me that excited her. And I, she pulled me aside and said, you're really good at math and you should be an engineer when you grow up. And I didn't know what that was, but I remember very clearly that she knew a woman who was an engineer and had me talk to her. And then she gave up basically her lunch periods and I gave up my recess and we would sit together and do math. And if you, this was like in the eighties before getting girls into STEM was the thing, but she made it a thing. And really that's what set me off on a path to pursue math and applied math and ultimately economics. And then if I could mention one other teacher, you know, fast forward to college, I went to Princeton, I got there, really didn't know what I was doing or what I should do. You get assigned to a random faculty advisor. And I just happened to get assigned to Beth Bogan, who was a lecturer in the economics department. She just retired last year. And I had this meandering conversation when I told her I liked literature, I liked history, I cared about policy. And she said, I'm looking at your math scores and you should take economics. And I didn't know what that was, but she convinced me I would like it. And I did. And then she convinced me to stick with it. And even when I told her, you know, I want to go get a master's in public policy, she said, you should stick with economics. And if you do economics and you get a PhD in economics, you will be able to weigh in on policy debates with a level of rigor that will be viewed as a high level of expertise. And so, I mean, really, it's Beth Bogan who convinced me to become an economist. And so I remain grateful to her. You know, Melissa, I look back with teachers on so much reverence. You mentioned fifth grade. And to me, it was Mr. Peterson in fifth grade. And it wasn't economics. He just inspired me to want to learn. And it was all about American history. And it, it just, I think something about kids at the fifth grade level, which just makes us very receptive to good teaching. So... Now I'd like to talk about some of your research. You focused a lot on the economics of the family. In a report you authored this summer, you explored the implications of what you called the COVID baby bust or a significant decline in births due to the pandemic. Talk about what your study found and how you view the long-term implications of this to the U.S. economy. Sure. So this report, which I co-authored with my collaborator, Phil Levine, we decided to write this because when the pandemic first hit, there were a lot of stories predicting that there would be a spike in births because of shutdown orders. People were locked at home and, you know, this was this cute idea. What were they going to do but make babies? And we both knew enough of the economics on this to know that actually births are pro-cyclical. When people have more money, they have more kids. When times are tough, people have fewer kids. And so we ran the numbers and basically predicted that given the depth of the recession and given the public health crisis, and to come up with these estimates, we looked back at what happened during the Great Recession and what happened during the Spanish flu. We predicted there would be on the order of 300 to 500,000 fewer births next year. It's too early to see if that's right. The kids that, you know, have been conceived during the pandemic and are, or, and are not you know, sort of are missing, that will start to show up in data next month. But survey evidence since our report suggests that in fact, many young couples are reporting delaying or averting their plans to start or grow a family. So what are the implications of this? Well, of course, at an individual and personal level, there's a level of loss. You know, if people feel like they can't 
afford or they don't have the economic certainty that would make them comfortable having children and the children they would have liked to have or the siblings that they would have liked to have given their um, existing children. On a society level, you know, if this is just a one-time shock and some of it is sort of reversed in future years, then this alone won't have such of a big implication. But this likely baby bust comes on the heels of a steady declining fertility rate already. And declining fertility rates are a problem for countries. One, because kids are who grow up to be our future workers. And the fewer births we have, the older the composition of our population becomes. So the combination of people living longer and people having fewer births means that the U.S. has been aging for a while, and that has negative implications for productivity. It also has worrisome implications for the sustainability of our social insurance programs, meaning you need workers to support the benefits that are going to retired workers through social security or disabled workers also through social security. The fewer workers you have per older beneficiary, the harder those systems become to sustain. And so that's why you know, economists and demographers worry about declining birth rates and the implications they have for a country. So, Melissa, now I'm going to go to another related issue, which impacts uh, productivity, impacts our social insurance programs, and so on. So that concern is the falling female labor force participation, you know, driven by a collapse in child care and school closings. And, you know, that's driving millions of parents, but especially mothers, out of the workforce. What's the economic evidence here, and what do you predict the impact of that will be on women's employment in the U.S. economy. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. So, so this is definitely a real concern. Let me take a step back and just to situate things, mention what was happening with female labor force participation before the pandemic. So there had been a steady rise in the rate at which women were working through the 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, tremendous rise. And that sort of plateaued around 2000. And then since 2000, female labor force participation has been coming down a little bit, driven primarily by non-college educated women. So in previous work, I've looked at that and my conclusion was, you know, the post 2000 stagnation or decline in female labor force participation really should be thought of as consistent with the general decline in, in work among non-college educated workers. At that point, women were half of the workforce and the same forces that were driving down demand for less educated workers were applying to women and men. So it was less of a gendered story and more of a non-college educated workers, both men and women are getting hit hard by labor market conditions. Fast forward to the pandemic and you know the worry is that all of the gains in labor force participation that women made in those earlier decades, a lot of those are gonna be erased because this pandemic and the associated school and daycare closures are revealing the fact that women are still primarily responsible with caregiving in the home. And so first, let's just talk about workers. So you know, Hank, from the beginning of the pandemic in March, I've been worried about the fact that school closures would not only be a disaster for children, but also for workers. And I felt like it wasn't getting enough attention you know, a quarter of workers have at least one child under the age of 13. So why policymakers didn't realize that school closures would really mean people were limited in the work they could provide, I'm not sure. 
So of those quarter workers who have at least one kid under 13, 70% of them have a working spouse. 15% have no spouse present. So, you know, it's a minority of working parents who have a parent in the home now who could take care of the kid full time. And, and maybe that's a shift from a few decades ago, which is why some policymakers weren't immediately realizing what an issue this was going to be. Okay, now let's turn to the gendered element of it, which you've brought up. So there's, you know, still a gap in childcare responsibilities, even though the majority of mothers work these days. So first, we've got a lot of single mothers. 21% of kids in this country live with just a mom. So now if you have just a mom who's responsible for, you know, the financial well-being of the family and she needs to work, now she's also responsible for taking care of the kid all day because school is closed. Even among married households, in time use survey, we see that mothers contribute twice as many hours of childcare as do fathers. Okay, so all of this suggests we should have expected workers were going to get hit hard and mothers in particular, and census survey data is bearing that out. So the census is conducting this pulse survey asking people how they're faring during the pandemic. And we see in that that mothers are twice as likely as fathers to say they're not working due to childcare issues. The numbers this summer had that at 30% as compared to 10%. So, I mean, that's a huge share of working mothers who are unable to work right now because of childcare issues. And that is devastating. And of course, as you mentioned, from the beginning, you and I have both been frustrated beyond belief at school closings and the fact that we're keeping bars open, right? And <laughs> closing schools. It would be a Saturday Night Live skit. It'd be so funny if it weren't just tragic. So you wrote recently that the COVID-19 crisis shows we as a nation fail to prioritize the protection of our nation's most vulnerable children. And I want you to talk about this. Do our schools have to be closed? Why are so many children being left behind? What should policymakers be doing differently? You know, and, and, and you're right to focus on the most vulnerable children, but I think just focusing on all children too. It, it, this is this is not good in my view, but I'd like you to explicate that. Okay, so what I mean by this, you know, the nation fails to prioritize the protection of our most vulnerable children. This has always been true. We spend shockingly little of our federal budget on programs to help poor kids and poor yeah. families. I mean, shockingly little. And when, you know, forget the moral argument, though I think it's a strong one, the economic argument is really compelling. And if the moral argument doesn't move people in, you know, positions to make these decisions, I would have thought or hoped the economic one does. These kids are, I mean, it sounds trite to say, but the future of our country. And the fact that so many of them are being left behind, are growing up in poverty, having their human capital potential stunted is really just not in the nation's interest. We've never prioritized that. And, and I think, you know, this pandemic has made that abundantly clear with almost how casually we just close schools. So the question of should schools be closed is, very unfortunately now a very politically charged one. And as soon as you suggest schools shouldn't be closed, you're met with, 
you know, oh, don't you care about teachers? Yes, I care about teachers. I also care about doctors and nurses and essential workers at the grocery store and everyone else is going to work. And so what we should have been asking from the beginning is not, oh, is there some chance that kids are gonna spread this in schools? But what do we have to do to make sure that schools can open safely and how do we get there? And the vulnerable kids, of course, that's where the real tragedy lies. There are kids who rely on school as a safe place to be during the day, as a place for their meals. You know, it's really kids in low income situations and, you know, who don't have stable family lives who really, it just breaks my heart to think how many of them are home these days learning essentially nothing and, you know, and potentially being in unsafe situations. But if we just think about how much learning is lost, especially for low income kids over the summer, and extrapolate that to the fact that now they're missing out on something like 12 months of school, those are going to be learning deficits that I just worry some of these kids will never recoup. You know, Melissa, I've long thought, as I know you do, that uh, an equal education opportunity is a basic civil right. It, it should be a basic civil right. And as you look at policy, there's so many things we could discuss. I mean, when you look at so much of funding being reliant on a property tax and what that means for urban schools and budgets. And there's just so many issues. And of course, the work that you led with the economic strategy group on some of this topic, on, on education and, the, you know, the, just the long-term, you know, this is an investment. It's not an expenditure. We don't budget for it properly. The impact that this has long-term impact, you know, socially, economically, it's terrible. But what it's going to take to reorient our thinking here is it's going to be the key to our long-term economic future as a nation. Now, I want to go a little bit to the economic strategy group, because to me, your magic is not just being a first-rate academic economist, you are exceptional at translating academic research into accessible policy relevant material. I've seen this firsthand with the work you've done with me at the Economic Strategy Group. So talk about this, what's your approach to policymaking and how can economists do a better job of translating their work into effective public policy? Well, first of all, thank you. That's very generous of you to say about me. You know, I, you alluded to this at the beginning. I came to economics because I see it as a tool that helps us better understand the world and improve the world. And once you view economics that way, it's silly and counterproductive for economists not to spend more time making their work relevant and accessible. You know, one of the things I've come to appreciate is that a lot of academics are either just not that good at it or frankly not interested. And so for those of us in the profession who are interested in seeing policymaking draw on rigorous economic evidence, there's a real use and, you know, for us to work to bring that evidence to journalists, policymakers, et cetera. We need platforms like the Economic Strategy Group uh, and other groups like ours that sort of live at that intersection and offer that outlet. So, I, I mean, I think that's one of the really important things we do at the Economic Strategy Group is bring in evidence from academia and work 
to make it accessible and policy relevant. I also think, you know, the profession can do more to reward and value and teach this kind of work. So this is something that I certainly do when I train my students is you can't just hide behind the math and fancy jargon. Like, tell me why this is an interesting question. And then if you write down all these fancy equations, explain them in English. And a lot of times when you make someone do that, it becomes clear that it didn't really make any sense to begin with. But you know, when academics talk to each other, it's yeah. like put up, people put up their peacock feathers and try to impress each other with the technical language and math. And actually, you know, we need people in the profession to push back a little bit and say, that's all very smart. But is there anything more than just, you know, mathematical playing around here? Is there anything useful? And does the interpretation make any sense? So that's, you know, that's the way I, that's the perspective I bring to training my students and to editing papers and journals that I work on, et cetera. And the more people that do that, the more relevant our field will be. I used to, this is not in economics, but I used to say to people who worked for me at Goldman Sachs, listen, you can come up with the best idea in the world and go off in your closet and invent it. But if you can't persuade other people and you can't make it relevant or get something done, it's not worth a lot. And I know that understates some of the work that's done by superb academic economists, but I'm a big believer in your approach. Now, we've both alluded to this Aspen Economic Strategy Group. Why don't you just take a minute and uh, just briefly tell our listeners what this group is, what the mission is. Yeah, so our group's mission is to bring together a bipartisan collection of economic leaders that come from the business world, policy world, academia, and meet to discuss the most rigorous evidence on ongoing economic challenges, clarify the lines of debate around those challenges, and then have open, honest policy conversations and debates about what it means for how to move America forward. And we do some of that in a closed or off the record way, which I think is really important because it gives people a way to ask questions or raise ideas that they don't want to be quoted in the newspaper as saying. And there's a real value to allowing a space for honest, open questioning and conversation. And then some of it we do by bringing the insights and conclusions into the public. I think what makes our group so unique and so important, especially at this moment in time, is the bipartisan nature of it and the willingness of our members to really engage in a respectful, constructive way with people from across the political spectrum. And clearly our country needs more of that at this time. Very well said. The other thing I might add is this group, which has got people, you know, as you said, from Democrats, Republicans, business, you know, people with all different political persuasions, they had a couple of views in common. And one was a sincere belief that our economic policies had to be updated so that more Americans could participate in success. Too many were left behind. I think the group believes in capitalism. There's no doubt about that. But the question is what policies would work. And so I think that's another thing that brings the group together and uh, makes it work. 
Now, I want to go to another issue that is afflicting America. One of the things that continues to surprise me is how many even well-educated people, you know, that are basically illiterate when it comes to economics and just basic, basic principles. And I love some of the stories you've told me about how your young daughters are already picking up basic economic principles. But how can we do a better job of educating those who don't have a leading economist as a mom and are never going to be economists? They're, they're going to go into all kinds of other careers, but they need to understand something about economics. What are we missing? What can we do differently? Yeah, no, it's true. My, my kids, you know, poor things, they can't help but Every time they bring something up, I'm like, we have a term for that in economics. It's opportunity cost or it's public good. And because really economics covers a lot of the way we live and it's very relevant. You know, the first thing we need to do is have economics as part of the social studies curriculum in K through 12, right? And I have to say, I don't know how widespread this is, but last year I saw in, you know, in the fourth grade Montgomery County curriculum, one of the quarters was economics. And, you know, there was a worksheet on opportunity cost. And I thought that was amazing. And I don't know how widespread that is, but that is exactly what should be happening. Another part of this, I think part of the reason why people struggle so much with economics and understanding it is because of a lack of basic understanding of how to read data and statistics. And that needs to be part of our K through 12 schools as well. Like statistics needs to be a key part of the way we teach people math, even at a basic level. You know, in college, I love teaching the undergrads who aren't going to go on to be economists. And I always say to them, you're not going to remember a lot of what I taught you, but there are some key principles I hope you never forget. One being everything's about trade-offs, people respond to incentives, right? And then I try to say, gosh, I really hope you could read the newspaper and figure out when research is like believable or not, or, or whether a statistic makes sense. And so those are the kinds of lessons I think we can use economics to bring to more people. Like you said, even if they don't want to grow up to be economists, just so they could be educated consumers of the news and voters. And I will put some of that back on the economics profession. It relates to something I said before. We need to teach economics in a way that's accessible isn't just so reliant on the math and the technical aspects that we lose the forest for the trees. And the more we do that, the more people will remember the basics of it. I tell you, well said, and I'm not gonna go off on this tangent, but I could say the same thing about finance. It's amazing how many well-educated people get themselves into financial problems when they don't need to, because they just don't understand basic finance and sign on to mortgages they never should have signed on to or go into you know to take on debt or don't think about savings or investing properly and or get taken advantage of by unscrupulous people that are selling them on transactions they should never go into now i want to give you one last question here which is you know you've talked a lot about students and that's what you do. You spend a lot of time with students in addition to doing research. What advice do you give them for navigating their careers in the midst of this pandemic? 
you know, the pandemic is, is just heartbreaking for so many people, but I feel terrible for the students who are stuck alone in their apartments doing their work. And so the first thing I do these days when I check in on my students is just try to get a sense of how they're doing, you know, and are they getting out? Are they seeing people? Like so many, I think mental health struggles are real during this crisis, especially for, you know, young people who are home alone trying to study. But, you know, my, the career advice I give to young people is always pretty consistent. I am not one of those econ professors who thinks everyone should grow up to be an econ professor. And so I really encourage students to pursue what they're interested in. You know, the workday is long, the work life is long, and you really have to do what you love. One other thing I emphasize a lot is at the beginning of one's career, especially people have to be willing to put in the really long hours and really hard work to become an expert in something. You know, I had a student a couple years ago and it cracked me up. He came to my office hours. This was an undergrad. And he says, you know, I, I just want to ask you, how do I get to do what you do when I grow up? And I said, what do you, what do you think I do? And he's like, you basically seem to like, just get to talk and write about things you find interesting. And I laughed. I was like, I'm glad I make being an econ professor look so fun. I was like, you don't just get to talk and write about what you think is interesting unless you've spent a lot of time making sure you know what you're talking about. And so, you know, buckle down and work hard. (laughs) That's what I tell people all the time. I can't, believe the number of people. I could see that even going back in the days when I graduated from business school. You know, those that said, boy, I want to be a leader. I want to run a big company. I want to do this. And they they went for the job where the title was the best title and they didn't learn the basics. And I keep telling people, you got to be really good at something and really learn it and master it until you're going to be able to to lead. And uh, so the most important thing you have to do is keep learning, keep learning and growing. So Melissa, this has been terrific. And uh, the issues that you are focused on right now, the policy issues are the issues that are just of vital importance to, to, to our country. And so keep working in that intersection of economics and policy and I think it's, we're all going to benefit from it. So thank you. Thank you so much, Hank. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.